It was 1975. There was a corps of engineers that decided they were going to build a dam in southeast Idaho along the Snake River there. And the thinking was they could build this dam there in the Snake River in Idaho that uh, they could produce enough energy and water for uh, a, a large part of the West. So they, they begin to construct the dam. And as they're doing it, not soon after that, uh, large cracks in the dam as they're building it begin to emerge. Great fissures begin to emerge. So big, in fact, almost like caves that grown men could actually walk in them and stand in them. And so there were signs, but they thought, hey, we can figure this thing out. And they patched it up and they thought they had fixed the problem. But upon completion of the dam, it was evident that they hadn't fixed the problem. Soon after the dam was completed, a large brown stripe uh, emerged on one side of the dam. Water was seeping in. Soon thereafter, water just began pouring through the other side. They thought they had more time, but they didn't. Water began pouring through. Eleven people were killed, and it did untold million dollars worth of damage. If you were to go there now on that little portion of the river, it looks just like a little lazy river and there's hills and trees there, but, um, you know, they thought they had fixed it. The dam was failing. They thought they had it taken care of, but they didn't. The dam broke. Lives were lost in the onslaught of the flood. You know, we live in a day and age when dams are breaking. We just, we just prayed about it. You, you look at the headlines and you can see dams are breaking, things are cracking. We live in a world where lives are threatened by uncontrollable floods. And we can spend our time arguing about whose fault it is, or we can see it as a time for Jesus to do what only Jesus can do, as we'll learn in John's Gospel, chapter 9. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. We are in the middle of this sermon series called Face to Face, where we're looking at what happens when Jesus meets people. We saw that when Jesus met Zacchaeus, this up-and-outer, this rich guy who had no friends, and then Jesus allowed him to belong. And then we saw last week when Jesus met the madman of the Gerasenes, and how he met, made this madman a missionary. And now we'll see what Jesus does this week as he meets a blind man. And we see what Jesus does, it challenges us because we are called to be his ambassadors, to represent Jesus as Jesus would represent himself. So let's go ahead, let's check it out. John 9, verses 1 through 11. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. We must do the work while it is still day, because night is coming when no one can work. You know, we call it seminary-itis. It's this dreaded disease that sometimes you can uh, contract when you go to seminary. You know, you go to seminary and you just study theology all day, every day, and all of a sudden you can contract this terrible disease. Everything in life becomes a theological crisis. You know, every, you can't go anywhere. You can't go to an athletic event. You can't go to the grocery store. You can't go to a park without it being some kind of theological, philosophical problem that you have to figure out. You just start waxing theological on everything. And so the disciples, they've been with Jesus for a while now. This is, this is uh, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, and it appears that they've contracted this terrible disease. And so they see a man. A man sitting on the side of the road, begging because he's blind. They see that he is blind. They see that he is begging. But see, for the disciples, this is now a philosophical issue. This is now a theological problem that must be sorted out. He is an object to be discussed and analyzed. And so they begin to talk about the man. Not with the man, they just talk about him. And they say, Jesus, who sinned? This man, now the man is standing right there with him, right? He's right there. And they say, who sinned? This man? They're not, they're not talking to him. They just talk about him. And you have to wonder, I mean, he's blind, but he can still hear, right? I mean, how many times in life do you think that this man who's been blind from birth had been talked about, but never talked to? How many times do you think it happened where people would walk by and rather than actually engaging the man, they just talk about the man. They point fingers to, toward the man or ignore the man altogether. See, he never really had the opportunity to just encounter life the way it ought to be lived. He'd heard conversations about him, but never really invited to have conversations with him. And now the disciples, they too, they got to know who sinned. This guy or his parents? You see, the common belief of the day was if you had a problem, it was either the result of your own sin or the result of your parents' sin. And so sometimes, you know, oftentimes this is true. You mess up, you do something dumb, you reap the consequences. Parents mess up and the children, they get caught in the crossfire afterwards. We inherit sin and at the same time, we voluntarily choose sin. And so the disciples, they want to know, Jesus, you got to tell us whose fault is it? Who's to blame? Who can we point the finger toward? Who sinned? we got to know. we we got, we got to point the finger at somebody here as if pointing the finger would solve anything. See, don't play the blame game. Don't play the blame game. We spend so much time in our culture, in our own lives, trying to figure out who's at blame. 
No, it's my parents' fault. If they had just loved me more, if they had been better parents, you know, I would not be the person that I am today. It's my spouse's fault. They just understood me. If they just got me, if they just supported me a little bit more, life would be better. It's my boss's fault, you know, if he or she just was a little more encouraging, if they, if they just created a better work environment, things would be better. Oh, it starts from a young age, right? I mean, little kids. Oh, it's his fault, it's her fault, my sister's fault, my brother's fault. It's always someone's fault. We can always point the finger at somebody. We love to play the blame game. You know, the Republicans blame the Democrats, the Democrats blame the Republicans. It's all over society. We love to play the blame game. But how much does all of that really help? What does that really accomplish anyway? I mean, if the disciples could go to this guy and say, all right, we've sorted it out. It's your fault. You're blind and it's your fault. We got to the bottom of it. Does that help? (laughs) Does that make it any better? See, Jesus, he gives this answer. Whose sin, this man or his parents? Jesus says it's not this man or his parents' sin, but then he does something else. He says it really doesn't matter whose sin it is because night is coming and we've got work to do. Don't spend your time trying to point the finger and figure out whose sin it is. Night is coming. We've got work to do. Pointing the finger really doesn't help doesn't matter how we got in the mess he's in. But we do have to agree with the disciples. It's a lot easier, right? It's a whole lot easier just to point the finger than to actually intervene and do something about it. It's much easier just to say, yeah, it's his fault. It's his parents' fault. All right, we're done. It's much easier to come alongside someone and say, well, hey, you made some really poor decisions. This is why you're in the fix you're in. It's all your fault. It's a whole lot easier to say, hey, you made some really bad choices. Now bad things are going to happen in your life. You made your bed, now you just lie in it. It's a whole lot easier to do that. And see, when you do that, it's really easy just to dismiss people. Just to walk away, head held high. Hey, you know, it's your fault. I'm absolved from this mess. You've got to deal with it. And that's what the disciples want to be able to do. Because they've got this theological problem. They've got seminaryitis going on. We just want to be able to point the finger. And Jesus encourages his disciples, don't play the blame game. But rather, do the hard work of truly caring for people. Even difficult people like this man who's going to be hard to care for, care for him. Don't worry about pointing the finger. Care for people. And I want you to see this in the historical context, okay? So you got to bear with me for a minute here as we kind of trace this story back to, re- to really understand what Jesus is doing. If you go back to John chapter 7, the setting there, it's the f- festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths. And one of the predominant aspects of the festival of tabernacles was water. And so what would happen was the high priest, he would go down to the pool of Siloam and he would dip the basin in the water. And then he would return carrying the basin of water. And while the crowd was there, they would start chanting from Isaiah. And they would chant, you will joyously draw water 
from the springs of salvation. You will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. You will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And the crowds were chanting this. And then the high priest, he would pour water over the rock of the altar. It signified the water that flowed from the rock that the Israelites drank from in the Old Testament in the wilderness. And so, so this is what this is all symbolizing. And John makes the presentation that the waters of Siloam provided this excellent backdrop for Jesus to introduce himself as Messiah, as the living water. That's what Jesus claims in John 7. I am the living water. He who drinks from me will never be thirsty again. And it's connected to this festival, this festival of tabernacles. And as you're seeing this picture, you need to understand that the, the, it goes even further than this. There was a second equally important aspect to the festival. It was a ceremony called the Illumination of the Temple. And it took place in the treasury, also known as the Court of Women. And so this court would be surrounded um, with all kinds of spectators. And uh, there were galleries that were meant to hold hundreds of people. And in the center of the court were four gigantic candelabras. And the candelabras would be lit during uh, this festival. And it was said that they sent such a blaze that they could be seen throughout courtyards all over Jerusalem. That every courtyard would be filled with their brilliance, the amount of light these candelabras gave off. Now note, these candelabras, they were basically stage props, okay? They were just meant to remind the Israelites of the pillar of fire that led them out of the wilderness that their forefathers had followed. So so this is what is being pictured here. This is what Jesus is doing. And now in John chapter 9, in the festival of tabernacles, it has just been completed. It's just ended. And these candelabras that had blazed forth this incredible light, well, they're now extinguished. They've now been put out because the festival is over. And so this is the background, and if you look at verse 5 here in John chapter 9, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. See, the courtyard, just a little ways away where the candelabras were located, they're now dark, and they're now dark, silent reminders, standing before the Israelites as if to say, we're still waiting for the Messiah, We're still waiting for the one who can guide us out of this darkness, who can ultimately guide us out of the wilderness. We're still waiting for Messiah. And now Jesus comes up and he says, I am the light which lasts forever. These candelabras, they've been snuffed out. They've been extinguished. But I am the light which lasts forever. What he's doing, he's telling his disciples, lead people to me because I know where to take them. If they follow me, I can take them to rest. I can take them to peace. So he's using the background of the day. And and it's, you know, the disciples, they're asking this theological question. Jesus gives them a theological answer. Only it's much deeper than what they were looking for. It goes way further beyond what they were expecting says, it doesn't matter what kind of mess people are in. I am the pillar of light that you can trust. I am the living water that will make you never thirst again. You can follow me. I'll never be extinguished. 
I can lead them out. But you're just playing the blame game. You just want to point fingers. And if you're doing that, you might as well be walking around in a dark wilderness because you're not getting anywhere. You're not leading these people anywhere. And so Jesus turns to the blind man, spits on the ground, makes some mud, wipes it on the man's eyes, and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And this seems odd to us, right? I mean, we read this in our context today and say, Jesus, we know you're powerful. Why didn't you just say the words? I mean, we know he has the power. If he just says the words, the man can be healed. But see, you must understand Jesus' actions in the context of what is happening here. And Siloam, as you recall, was the place where the priests went to dip their basin into the water that signified God's spiritual and physical provision for his people. And Jesus has already declared, hey, if you're thirsty, drink of me. I'll never run out. And now, for us non-Jews, we have to follow this carefully. Jesus sends the man to the pool of Siloam, and in this one miracle, in this one miracle, the themes of both water and light within the Feast of Tabernacles are now displayed through Jesus as a sign to Israel. Because here is a blind beggar, groping at the water's edge, kneeling at the pool of Siloam, obeying the words of Christ, applying water to his sightless eyes, slowly lifting his head out of the water, water dripping from his face. He opens his eyes and a flood of strange light begins to come in and he blinks away the watery mist. And finally, light begins to clarify the objects. Light begins to clarify faces, reflections. He rises to his feet and curious onlookers just can't understand what they've just witnessed because now this man can see. And they're trying to figure it out. And the broader point that John is making to the Jews of that day in his gospel is this. If Israel, the blind beggar, will obey the words of Jesus and come to Jesus, the light of the world, the living water, they also can follow the light and never thirst again. See, Jesus' miracle wasn't just for the blind beggar. It was for all the Jews to see and to take note. Jesus is Messiah. That's what he's trying to get across. But Israel misses it. Tragically, the Jews miss it. The rest of the chapter, verses 12 through 41, records primarily the response of the Pharisees, but really all of Israel, all the Jews. And while the blind man can now see, it becomes readily clear, Israel is still blind. In fact, you you know what really rattled their cages? (laughs) What really got the Pharisees just really up in arms with this whole thing? Jesus performed this miracle on the Sabbath. He did it on the day of rest. (laughs) And you've got to understand Sabbath laws, okay? It was against the law to carry a burden on the Sabbath. right? That's Old Testament. And so what the Pharisees do is they add all this stuff to it. The problem with the Jews, the problem with the Pharisees, is not that they loved the law too much. The problem is they didn't love it enough. They didn't love the law enough to let the law be the law. And what do they do? They try to add to it. 
And they make more laws and more laws and more laws. They don't accept God's law as God's law. So they put all a man's laws on top of it. And you, go, and you can read some of the laws that they put on, like what carrying a burden was. You go through, you look at it, and I'm just going to read a couple to you. It was illegal to carry a handkerchief from one room to another. Okay? That was a burden too great. It, it was illegal. You, you could not light a lamp on a Sabbath. That was a burden too great. You could not cut your fingernails on the Sabbath or pluck your beard on the Sabbath or, get this, perform medicine on the Sabbath. See, according to rabbinical maxims, it was all right to practice medicine if a life was in danger, right? If it was a life or death situation, then you can go ahead and help somebody out. But if it was anything less than that, Right? If it was just kind of making them feel better, they had all this stuff. You couldn't pour water on a sprained ankle. Okay, there are all kinds of stuff like this. And so here's a blind man. His life is not threatened, right? I mean, he's going to be able to live even if he can't see. And yet Jesus performed medicine on him. And so the Pharisees, they're in a real fix. The Jews are in a real fix because they've got the disease of seminaryitis too. They like to point fingers. They like to think through everything. And so they believed in that day that causing a blind person to see was an unmistakable proof that that person was the Messiah because that had never been done before. In all of the Old Testament, that miracle had never been performed before. And all of a sudden, this miracle takes place, but it takes place on the Sabbath. And so now they're, they're in a real fix, and this is very confusing for them. And so what they decide to do is to discredit Jesus, who they already can't stand, and they try to discredit him by attacking the witness, attacking the blind man. You go, look with me, verses 18 through 22, John 9. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. See, the Pharisees, they're spreading rumors. The Jews believe the Pharisees. Nobody believes the man who used to be blind. See, they're just attacking the witness, try to discredit Jesus by attacking the witness. And so the Pharisees are the ones, they're pointing fingers, they're playing the blame game, they're trying, they're trying to fix this all for their advantage. And this is so tragic, they even go to this man's parents, right? The ones who should be responsible for him, the ones who should look after him, the ones who should try to protect him. I mean, if anyone is going to look out for the man, it's going to be his parents, right? But what happens? They're afraid on account of the Jews. And they say, yeah, he's of age. You know, you just ask him, don't, don't ask us. 
Not even, not even his parents will stand up for him. And so the blind man who had been walked by for all these years, who had been ignored since he was born, who had been talked about but never talked to, now he's able to see. I mean, this, this was a time. His parents, his community, they, they should be so excited, right? No. Everybody's turning on him. And it's happening so fast. He can only just now see, and now all of this, I mean, he can't even make sense of it all. You go through and you read the rest of the chapter and how it progresses. They begin to question him, the Pharisees, and he answers, I don't know if, if Jesus is a sinner or not, but one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. And the Pharisees, they press further and they say, well, tell us again, how did he make you see? And he says, are you really asking this time? Are you really going to listen this time? Are you actually thinking about being like one of his disciples? I mean, he's probably excited, right? This man who just healed me, are you really starting to get it? And they say, no, we don't want to be one of his disciples. We follow Moses. We want Moses in the law. You take Jesus, we don't want him. And then the man says, you know, he caused me to see. He must be God. Because only God can make a blind man see. And that was enough. I mean, that was the last straw. The, the, the Pharisees couldn't handle that because no matter how strong the court of the Pharisees were, they couldn't change that fact. They, they couldn't change the fact that this man who was blind could now see. And now this man who was blind, now seeing, is lecturing them. That's, that's the last straw for, for them. And so verse 34 says, they cast him out. They cast him out. This was permanent excommunication where this man is now banished from the synagogue for life. And to be banished from the synagogue for life, I mean, this was devastating because the synagogue controlled everything for the life of the Jew. Everything for the life of the Jew, social, civic, political, and of course religious. And he's excommunicated from living the life of a Jew because he's been cast out, permanently banished from synagogue life. And the ultimate terror here of this for a Jew at that time was to be cast out from the synagogue also meant that I'm now cast out from God. That now God himself, the Pharisees are now telling him, God himself doesn't want anything to do with you. So this is the terror that this man is feeling. He's a beggar, dressed in rags, hurt, rejected by those who really should have been throwing a week-long celebration. I mean, his community should have just rejoiced over him and received him with open arms. His parents should have, they should have just wept with joy as they embraced him and just took him to the sights around Jerusalem and allowed him to see for the first time and behold all this stuff and watch his face just fill with awe and wonder as he's seeing everything for the very first time. But he doesn't get any of that. Even his own parents reject him on account of their own reputation. They don't want to be excommunicated from the synagogue as well. He's still an unwanted outsider. He's still talked about, but not talked to. He's still alone, yet to really encounter life the way life is meant to be lived. And then see what happens, 
verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is now speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may become blind, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. His community, not even his parents, would embrace him. They wouldn't celebrate over him. They they just kicked him out. Jesus found out, and he sought him out. He had to find him. And he found him, and he welcomed him. Imagine being told that you are no longer able to worship, that you have been cast out, and then Jesus himself, the Son of God, comes to that man so that that man could have a personal worship service with the Savior. (laughs) Jesus didn't just make the man see. He allowed the man to encounter life, to experience life the way it's meant to be lived. See, he who the world rejects, Jesus embraces. He who the world walks by, Jesus welcomes. He doesn't look over anybody. See, the great thing about Jesus is he doesn't come by and just point his finger from heaven. Say, look at you, how guilty you are. It is your fault. Look at the mess you're in. It's your fault. You did this. You made your bed. You lie in it. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he came from heaven to earth with arms wide open, say, I want to embrace you into my family. I want to forgive you of your sin. I'm not going to leave you right where you are, but I'm going to conform you into my image. There's a place at my table for you. See, that's what he does for the blind beggar. And then Jesus turns to the Pharisees, and you can see the cracks in the Pharisees. You can see the deep fissures in their false theology. The dam is breaking. They say we can see, but here's the problem. If you rub on a place long enough, a callus develops, right? A hardening of the skin, a thickening of the skin, a dullness of response. See, if the Spirit draws you and draws you and draws you and you do not respond, there is a thickening of the heart. There is a dullness to respond. There is a callousness. And then Jesus will call you and you won't even know it. The tragedy for the Pharisees and the Jews, is that Jesus had sent prophets. Jesus had sent John the Baptist just before him. Jesus himself came from heaven to earth to show them the way back to God. 
But there's a thickening of the heart. There's a callousness toward God. There's a dullness of response. And so while the blind beggar responds, Israel, the blind beggar, does not respond. So she is left blind, unable to see the light, still thirsting for something that would satisfy. Night came for those Pharisees and Jews, and no one could work. You don't know what time it is for your friend. You don't know what time it is for your loved one. You don't know what time it is for your neighbor, for your coworker. You just know this. The dam is cracking. Night is coming when no one can work. But this is a chance for grace. But hurry, because night is coming when no one can work. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you just didn't point the finger at us and tell us how much we're to blame. Even though because of our sin, we are fully to blame. But you didn't just say, hey, you made your bed, now lie in it. God, we thank you so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to us. God, forgive us for those times when it's easier or it makes us feel better for whatever reason. We just want to point the finger at somebody else. Instead of doing the hard work of really loving and caring for people. God, help us to go out with your power, with your compassion, to love people the way you've loved us. We recognize that we can't do it by ourselves. We need your help. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.